Welcome to Hot Politics. My name is David Mackay. I'm Deputy Managing Editor of Canada's National Observer. In Hot Politics, I examine who has the best ideas on important issues, especially the climate crisis. Hot Politics is made possible by listeners like you. We're asking for your support to keep the work going. Five or ten dollars as a one-time contribution or monthly gift. Every little bit helps keep us producing more episodes. So please donate at nationalobserver.com. Climate change, the climate crisis, climate action, carbon capture. We hear these terms every single day. So we know our world is in grave danger. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warns that we are facing an abyss in the climate crisis, a moment in time where, if we fail to act aggressively, there will be no going back, and we'll be living our failure for generations. The major action required is the reduction and eventual elimination of our use of fossil fuels. Antonio Guterres says the transition is too slow. Governments need to supercharge their efforts. Every day, the world heats up, so we need to do something fast. And the front line is the fossil fuel industry. At first, the industry was a very reluctant player. But now, it's boasting its approach is one of the fastest ways to reach net zero emissions by 2050. The industry's plan is to capture carbon emissions and store those emissions underground. Governments around the world have bought into that approach, providing billions of dollars in tax credits and grants to the fossil fuel industry. The industry says they can't play their part in reducing carbon emissions without taxpayers' dollars. Capture sounds like a pretty good word to use in fighting the climate crisis. But many scientists and environmentalists say carbon capture is not good enough to make a difference. And it's actually greenwashing. You know, pretending to do something that's good for the environment when it's not necessarily the best thing. So today we're going to take a deep dive into a process called carbon capture, utilization, and storage, or CCUS for short. We're calling this episode the Carbon Capture Mirage. Jun Sakara is a public policy practitioner and researcher whose work is focused on the public economy and public goods production. She's a visiting scholar at the New School for Social Research at the Heilbronner Center for Capitalism Studies, her scientific research on carbon capture and storage has been cited by the IPCC as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. June Sakara, welcome to Hot Politics. Thank you. Carbon capture is getting a lot of attention. And here in Canada, the fossil fuel industry appears to have, I guess, convinced everyone that it's a big part of our meeting our emissions commitments. Can you explain carbon capture and then we can talk about why you think it doesn't help in dealing with our global warming problem. So how does it work? It's really important to understand that different types of processes get all jammed uh, under this term, carbon capture and storage, CCS. And we need to separate out these things in order to understand what's really going on. With that said, there's sort of two things going on or two things that can't go on. One is catching CO2 at emission sources. 
So in the literature, that's called point source capture, but I just call it smokestack capture. And then the other process, main process, is removing CO2 from the air called carbon dioxide removals. It's an industrial process that uses machinery and energy and chemicals. And then it requires transport of the captured CO2, generally by pipelines, and building those pipelines, and then building and operating underground injection wells. You hear about capture, but you don't hear about the pipelines. You don't hear about the injection very much at all. So how the capture part works is that machinery is put on emission sources, smokestacks, at places like uh, plants that make fertilizer or ethanol or natural gas processing facilities. Then in most cases, this process requires the use of toxic chemicals because the chemicals are, what are, are what's used to separate out the CO2 from the flue gases that come out of the smokestacks. Other than that, um, CCS, the capture part, requires these chemicals, which are toxic and some are flammable. They have to be manufactured someplace. They have to be transported by train to where they're going to be used. And at scale, CCS would use tens of millions of tons of these chemicals per year. And the thing is, is that you have to have new pipelines because the CO2 being transported requires much, much higher pressure than natural gas. So you got to build a new pipeline. In order to, for CCS to work in any sense, you have to inject it underground to sort of get rid of it, to its waste disposal. And then there's talk of doing CCS at power plants, and that idea has not worked at all in the United States. We've had seven CCS projects at, at power plants since about 2011, and every one of them has failed. They've all been subsidized by the government. They've had hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies, and everyone has failed because they don't work. And also, they're not economically viable. How do you know it fails, June? They closed them down. It, was it because it wasn't capturing the carbon properly, or what? It wasn't capturing the carbon, or the machinery got literally gummed up. There was sand in the works and so forth. The other thing to understand is that when you're talking about doing CCS at power plants, the projects that have been done so far only put the machinery on a tiny little portion of the overall power plant. So even if the CO2 is being captured at, say, a smokestack or two smokestacks, there's still the entire power plant that is still emitting CO2. And even though it's such tiny experimental projects that have been going on, those projects haven't worked. They haven't been able to get that machinery to work. They haven't been able also to make it economically viable. So they shut down. They just shut all the projects down, except the one in Canada, Boundary Dam. Ah, okay. So is that a good example? So Boundary Dam is the only example where CCS has been done at a power plant on the planet that is still operating. It's only operating at a small portion of the overall power plant. It's a, some very small percentage of the total emissions are being captured by the CCS process. But the project also has a numbers of mechanical problems, but also, most importantly for customers, the price of electricity was driven way up because of the energy that's required just to run the CCS project. So you have to tack that on to the cost of producing the electricity. So is, is CCS carbon sequestration or is sequestration something different altogether? Yeah, that's a good question. I use the term sequestration to refer to 
biological methods of carbon removal. Most people, and I certainly, use the term storage when we're talking about injection of the CO2 underground after it's been captured by mechanical methods. And so when it's injected and stored underground, does it stay there? What you're doing is you're injecting the CO2 under extremely high pressure into rock formations like sandstone. So the CO2 just goes in between the grains of the sand of the rock. So the problem is, is that we don't know how much of it might leak out from these fracturings because it hasn't hardly been, it's been done at very, very, very small scale. And we're talking about, you know, moving towards billions of tons of underground storage if it were to get to scale. So the fossil fuel industry has created a mechanism to get the last drop of oil from their wells and their I guess they're calling this emissions reduction. So what's going on here? What's happening? Another great question. Well, just to back up a little bit, that once you've captured the CO2, what do you do with it, right? So then you transport it someplace. So what do you do with it? What do you do with the CO2? What's really happening is that there's 12 projects, CCS projects in the United States. There's a few in other parts of the world, but the United States has been the leader in this. 95% of the captured CO2 is used to extract new oil. So what they do is they capture the CO2, they transfer it, port it to a, an existing oil field that is partially de depleted. They inject the CO2 into the oil field, into the oil well, to flush out the remaining oil. And then that oil is uh, brought up and combusted. And the overall process can end up putting more CO2 into the air than it takes out. This process, it's called EOR, Enhanced Oil Recovery. And I just want to quote a professor at, um, at MIT, Charles Harvey. He says, CCS in the United States has been more useful for producing oil than cutting CO2 emissions. The CCS process, when you use the captured CO2 for enhanced oil recovery, studies have shown that it can put from one to three times as much CO2 into the air as it stores. So it can exacerbate our climate problem. Plus, it can cause other kinds of harms because of the, um, the transport and the storage, pipelines rupturing, storage leaking, causing earthquakes, and contaminating drinking water and leaking out of the storage sites, et cetera. And there's also another aspect of carbon emissions, and that's, you know, how do you get rid of or reduce what's actually in the air now? You alluded to this earlier. How was this done? When you're talking about CCS, it removes nothing from the air, nothing. I mean, yes, it can capture a little bit of, this, of the emissions coming out of smokestacks, but removes nothing from the air. So, so let's talk about removing CO2 from the air. It's called carbon dioxide removal. Carbon dioxide removal is what's getting a lot more attention these days, even in some quarters more than CCS point source capture. And here in Canada, too, the, the industry is pushing for it. The government doesn't want to go there, but the industry is certainly pushing for it. So... Yeah, I take your point. Yeah, CDR is 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 definitely much more uh, getting much more attention, much more money, much more government attention, much more press play. There's two approaches to removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. One is mechanical, which is basically the same thing as CCS. You use uh, mechanical methods and chemicals to pull the CO2 out. In this case, you're pulling it out of the air instead of pulling it from smokestacks. The other method is biological, biological sequestration. What I mean by that is enhancing the capabilities, the sequestration capabilities of forests and grasslands and wetlands and agricultural practices known as regenerative farming. But those methods are much more effective, much more efficient, and have positive co-benefits 
Isn't it better just to plant trees? Indeed, that even more than planting trees is to preserve the forests that we do have. And when you evaluate the mechanical methods and the biological methods side by side on an apples to apples basis, and you look at these criteria, you find that the mechanical methods are ineffective in most cases, because like I said there, the one in, in the United States is going to use fossil fuels to power the DAC process. The mechanical methods use enormous amounts of energy, and they have very negative co-impacts, whereas the biological processes are effective. And our data show that the biological processes in the United States right now are already on net sequestering 2 billion tons of CO2 per year. And biological, we mean trees, right? Well, trees and grasslands and coastal wetlands, inland wetlands. Yeah, it's mostly trees. It's mostly forests, but it's all these these methods. So, and by mechanical, we mean that the the what we've been talking about uh, capturing carbon and 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 burying it, transporting it, and then burying it, right? That's right. That's right. Okay. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. You've been studying this for a long time. You're an expert. You know this stuff inside out. And I'm wondering. Governments still support this. In your country, the United States, in our country, Canada, we've just had a federal budget. The government supports this. And so how do you how do you square that with the concerns that you have? It's hard to square. And I talk to people every day about this and how we can get people to understand and to our governments to act differently. And I think part of the problem is that the people who are making policy and making the laws, some of them actually don't understand what I just went through with you. I think a lot of them just don't get it, but a lot of them get it. And they nevertheless continue to pass the laws and appropriate the money because, well, maybe it's doing something and gee, we need to put everything on the table. We can't let anything go. We have to try everything. Those policymakers and legislators may not know or may not want to think about how bad things can get when you are transporting billions of tons of a toxic gas and CO2 at at high concentrations in pipelines is toxic. It's an asphyxiant. They may not really understand how dangerous it, it is and how dangerous for frontline communities, poor communities, poor people, communities of color who, of course, are you know going to be hit first and worst when these pipelines are built and the injection wells dug and the mass casualty events happen. So I don't think they're really thinking about it thoroughly, and probably many of them don't really want to think about it thoroughly. What about the general public? Do we really understand this? Every indicator says no, that people don't understand it. I mean, I ask my friends, I ask my dentist, I ask whomever uh, know about CCS, and they've heard it, and they have a generally positive idea about it. And then there are surveys and polls that have been done. And the surveys and polls also report that almost no one knows what this is, but they generally have a positive feeling about it because after all, capturing carbon, how, how can that be bad? And there's lots of advertising that's been done by the fossil fuel industry, which you know benefits from the process as it's been operated so far. So both from polls to just anecdotal evidence, people don't seem to understand all of the kinds of things that I've just gone through here today. So I guess you'll just have to keep doing interviews like this one then. Yes. (laughs) June Sakara, thank you very much for joining us on Hot Politics. It's an important discussion. Thank you very much. 
Thank you so much for inviting me. Earlier this year, internal documents from Exxon and Shell revealed that the industry knew about the risk of fossil fuels to the environment more than 40 years ago. In fact, their own scientists warned what would happen to the planet if we continue to burn fossil fuels. Exxon said that by 2060, the world would warm by 2 degrees. A few years later, an internal report by Shell predicted the effects would be felt by 2030. Both companies knew of the kinds of catastrophic effects we are experiencing now. The disappearance of specific ecosystems or habitat destruction, increased floods in some parts of the world, drought in others. Companies didn't raise the alarm. They didn't even change their business model. So here we are in 2023, face to face with those scientific warnings and the fossil fuel industry wants us, taxpayers, to help them transition away from a disaster they knew about 40 years ago. Angela Carter has a lot to say about that. She's an associate professor at the Department of Political Science at the Balsillie School of International Affairs at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. She's also an energy transitions specialist at the International Institute for Sustainable Development. One of her research areas is Canada's fossil fuel development and how it fits with international approaches to climate policy. In her book, Fossilized, she examined how the governments of three provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland and Labrador, offered extensive support for oil development in 2005 to 2015. She also documented how governments undermined or ignored their own environmental policies to help the industry. Angela Carter, welcome to Hot Politics. Happy to be here. Thank you, David, for having me. What kind of support did the oil industry get from these provinces in that 10-year period? So CCS has garnered a lot of public support over the last 10 years or so. And we are looking at already a commitment of, in Canadian dollars, over $9 billion public dollars to carbon capture and storage. Then that's paired with billions, nearly $4 billion from the governments of Alberta and Saskatchewan. So we have a huge public commitment for this particular solution to the climate crisis, all at a time when Canadians are experiencing hugely high costs of living and so far, CCS has uh, garnered a lot of that support. It's really important in the Canadian context because the use of carbon capture is, for the line share, headed towards enhancing oil recovery. So that's a, an important acronym there. EOR is Enhanced Oil Recovery. Mm -hmm. And currently, 70% of carbon capture and storage is being used to get more oil out of old oil wells and extend the life of oil wells, sometimes for decades. This is puzzling because, of course, carbon capture and storage is being presented as a climate solution. But in reality, for the most part, it is an oil production uh, aid or method. And so this has been a, a key reason why we hear that there's a lot of government support going towards this solution for the oil and gas sector. But just to be clear, the federal government and the industry are fine with, with carbon capture and storage. They're not 
cool with using it to produce more oil. And that is the friction point, right? Just to be clear. Yeah, that's right. And I should be clear, too, that we're talking here about the oil and gas sector. Carbon capture and storage has other uses uh, outside of this industry. If we separate the part where environmentalists are concerned that you're just using this to produce more oil, and when we look at the part that the federal government is supporting, and as support was announced in the last federal, federal budget, for example, talk a little bit about that process, because a lot of people are unhappy about that process. Okay, so the investment tax credit is a support that was very much demanded and requested by the oil and gas sector. And, you know, we saw this coming from particular firms as early as the summer of 2021, where firms were indicating that, yes, they wanted to reach net net zero by 2050, certainly, but it's going to be really expensive. And so we're going to need significant funding from government. And, you know, some of those numbers were actually very uh, astoundingly high. David, um, you know, to the tune of like $60 billion um, of support that was being requested. And the thing is, is that the major oil companies in Canada, the solution that they're leaning most on is CCS. So that is the primary solution that they're leaning on. And they are insisting that the public, through government subsidies, pay for that solution. So that raises the question of... Is this an effective way and a cost-effective way to bring down emissions? Does it actually get to the heart of the problem here? And then also the question of who should pay for it? Because we see what the profit levels have been for Canadian oil and gas companies. And the calculations are astounding. The five biggest Canadian oil and gas companies in 2022 had combined profits of over $38 billion. And these are unprecedented profits. They're historic. And so the question then becomes, why is it that the Canadian public should be paying for this high-profit industry to clean up its carbon and therefore climate mess? So that's an important question, I, I think, to really drive home. Would you argue that those billions of dollars that were committed in the last federal budget should be withdrawn? So... This industry does not need any more support for its decarbonization efforts. Absolutely not. And so what we need is for any public funding that's going towards you know, energy development, it has to be towards clean energy, and it has to be towards supporting that sustainable jobs uh, legislation that we're now starting to see or in an interim measure in any case. So no more subsidies for the sector um, on decarbonization. They have the resources more than ever to be able to do their fair share. You know, the question I have is that the federal government has already committed money. The federal government is under pressure from a part of the country, Alberta, Saskatchewan, that says you don't care about us. Is it good politics to say we're going to pull the funding or if we do give you money, we're going to attach all of these strings? So certainly... It, there's no business case here for further subsidies for this sector. A absolutely not. I mean, that, that's clear to us, David, by the numbers that I just shared with you. The industry has the resources it needs to do it. And I think what we're going to be seeing through the sustainable jobs supports that are rolling out is that commitment to transition from the federal government to provide the communities and the workers in these very exposed provinces with the support that they need to transition. And that is... What we're seeing, you know, in the United States and throughout the European Union, this is what energy policy 
looks like now. And so thankfully, we're starting to see the federal government starting um, to emulate that as well. What are some of your environmental concerns when it comes to this technology? Because it, sound, it sounds good, right? You take the carbon and you bury it. That sounds good. Why isn't it? I think the key point here is that if you look across a comparison of emission reduction options, carbon capture and storage is one of the most expensive. In fact, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, when we look at their assessment, shows that it is way out there in terms of costs and also in being the less efficacious. So basically, you're spending a lot to get this solution up and running and you're not getting the emission reductions, not nearly so compared to other methods. So for example, solar and wind and even methane capture and, uh, and control at oil and gas sites. So basically it's a high cost solution that's not getting us what we need. And the other issue here too is that these are very, very big and complex projects that take a long time to build. And we're running up against that 2030 deadline by which not just the global community, but Canada needs to be making uh, a steep decline. So we don't really have time for, you know, five-year, six-year projects that are excessively expensive when we have some of the solutions right in front of us through, for example, renewables, energy efficiency, and so forth. You know, there are those who say, yep, great to talk about renewables, fine, but we haven't scaled them up to a point where they can replace. So how do you respond to that? Well, actually, what I'm seeing now in the data trends is that renewable energy now compared to fossil fuel energy is much cheaper. And so this is why we're seeing the you know rapid uptick, for example, and I mean, the most obvious one is electric vehicle adoption. So we have rates of EV adoption that are just growing. You know, the reason for that is because, you know, not only is the technology really ready now, the technology not only is reliable, but it's falling in cost. But is it happening fast enough? I mean, we've done a lot of stories about people ordering up um, electric vehicles, having to wait. Uh, we know that there aren't enough critical minerals to make all the batteries and so on. It's fine to say, hey, we should do this, right? But if we haven't scaled it up enough to replace, you know, the fossil fuels, then is it realistic? If we take a very long view here, David, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about going back to the 1960s here. If we come back to that moment in history, this is when... Uh, that oil sands or the tar sands is something that scientists knew about, government scientists and so forth, as having a potential. But it seemed like it was impossible. Like, how would you ever make a usable fuel out of bitumen? It was actually government, government that put a ton of investment in terms of research and infrastructure, pilot projects. I mean, when you look at the amount of subsidies over time that that industry got from the 1960s onwards until it you know, exploded as an industry through the 2000s. In some ways, I mean, I think we can look back on that as a real success case, a success case that now, knowing what we know about the climate crisis, we need to apply those same principles, but for the renewable sector and for our energy transition. You're right, absolutely. We are currently highly reliant across Canada on fossil fuels, but we need to be making those choices right now to be able to, to switch our energy systems. And, you know, Arguably, that's already underway, right? We have the coal phase-out, coal-fired electricity phase-out, so excellent. We've got some experience with that. You're right that EV vehicles are hard for uh, a lot of people to access them, but that gives you a sense of the demand, right, that you've got in some provinces 
I think I was told it's like a two-year wait, right, to, to get your hands on an EV. Mm -hmm. yep. That gives you a sense of the appetite. Yes, there are issues with supply chains and so forth for, for getting these products to the level that are needed. But, I mean, these are all, in some ways, good problems to have, right, because these are opportunities now for growth. I would say that uh, this is a moment that's really exciting and interesting with a lot of unknowns because not only do we have the technology developed and the costs coming down, so we've got those technological pieces in play, we also have lots of public awareness now uh, globally and across Canada that the climate crisis is real and needs action. That, of course, has been driven by the intensification of the climate crisis itself, right? It's something we all now experience right across the country in different ways, but serious. And then I would overlay on top of that global climate policy action. So we're seeing this not only individual countries that have themselves implemented successful just transition or sustainable jobs transitions, and also I would say some American states as well, well underway, seizing jobs from that energy transition. We also have at the level of international institutions, the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance and other kinds of you know institutions and initiatives that are being created to show the way forward. So this is an interesting time on all of those accounts and uh, and just the sheer economics. So I think, I mean, this this could be a decade of great energy change in Canada, but we do have a barrier here, which is that a lot of our attention in terms of government funding, for example, has been directed towards the industry that is not the industry of the future. It's, it's, it is a fossilized industry. And that's, uh, that's us looking backwards. Looking forwards is thinking about, okay, how does that industry align with a global transition away from fossil fuels? In recent reports that we've authored at the International Institute for Sustainable Development, we've been showing that there's a clear consensus in energy analysis that global oil demand is going to peak around 2030, and it's going to fall steeply thereafter, and it's not going to rebound. Okay, so this is a huge red flag for a country like Canada, where we have a very entrenched oil and gas sector. Are we prepared for the energy change that's coming, you know, within less than a decade? Right now, I'd argue no, but there's a great deal. It's a great opportunity, a great deal of potential here, too. The other thing is that this is a very energy intensive process in and of itself, right? So to compress the CO2 and to uh, and transport and so forth. So that, that's what makes it quite expensive. You've got a lot of infrastructure and you've got also the energy intensity of it. And, and how, how, much, how much carbon is captured in the process? One of the concerns, the major concerns that we have about CCS is that while we've got seven projects that are operating in Canada, most of those are in the oil and gas sector or oil and gas related, they're capturing a really tiny portion, just a small slice of national emissions, about 0.5% of national emissions. So this is a solution that is taking a lot of public funding and a lot of public attention. But in reality, to date, after you know many years of this technology being in development, only a very small amount of emissions being saved. So in Canada's oil and gas sector, so here I'm focusing in on those oil and gas CCS projects, they are reducing emissions by just under 3 million tons of CO2 equivalent a year. And if we're looking at just the oil and gas sector's emissions, that's just over 1% of what the sector was emitting before the pandemic. Overall, CCS and the national landscape not saving us a lot of emissions, 
and in the oil and gas sector, and this, why this is so important, right, is because the oil and gas sector in Canada is our largest and fastest growing source of emissions in the country. Again, a very tiny slice of the emissions from that sector. You know, so for those who say this is one way to help us to get to net zero, it's cost effective, you would push back against that and say absolutely not. And, and if you look at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, their um, assessment of where emissions are coming from, the lion's share of our emissions are coming from oil and gas and coal. So because CCS is being directed towards when oil and gas is being extracted, capturing the emissions there. But you see, when you look at the whole life cycle of oil and gas, it's more like 80% of the emissions are on the consumption side. So this is a solution that's only directed towards about 20% of the problem. Where do you see this heading? You know, there, there's a push from organizations like the Pathways Alliance for more money. Uh, that, that's what the alliance is all about. So where do you see this heading? In a conversation that is very much dominated by industry and industry interests and has long been in this country for decades, right? We are trying to introduce climate-focused and also just transition-focused analysis that is independent, independent of industry, um, industry issues or industry talking points. And, you know, this is really, it's really difficult because, I mean, I mentioned to you earlier in our conversation about the kinds of resources that the oil and gas sector has at its disposal and the kind of access that it has um, to policymakers so definitely an uphill battle to get a different kind of perspective heard. Well, this certainly is is a hot topic, an important uh, discussion to be had. Angela Carter, thank you very much for this. Thank you for your reporting. Really appreciate it. Well, that's it for this week. Send us a comment through Apple Podcasts. And if you like our work, rate us a five. Pot Politics is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. Associate producer is Zara Kozema. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. And our publisher is Linda Solomon-Wood. I'm David Mackay. Next week, it's Maxed Out with Max Fawcett. See you in two weeks. <laughs>